We're going to continue our study on marriage, and hopefully you've got your handout in front of you, and uh, we're going to be in several passages this morning, and I trust that you will pay attention and uh, be blessed today. I do want to give just a couple brief announcements. I've already talked about Chili Cookoff. Um, don't forget, parents, that the children's church schedule will change beginning today. Uh, the children will gather with us in the auditorium, so they'll get out of Sunday school 15 minutes till, and then we will have them with us singing, and uh, that'll be a blessing, I'm sure, as they learn some adult songs. And then, men, it's really, really important, if you're planning to attend the workday this Saturday, which I hope you are, if you're at all possible, if it's at all possible for you to attend, if you could sign up at the back table there, um, that will allow me to uh, properly plan for you and food and things like that. Uh, we really do need all hands on deck. So if you don't work, it would be a huge blessing if you could sacrifice your time to be here. On Saturday, we'll start at 8.30. Um, I'll have some breakfast items and some lunch. Uh, and hopefully in that span of a day, we'll get it all done. And maybe quicker, I don't know. Uh, I've never demoed a church chapel before. So uh, this is new for me. So I hope that you'll be able to attend um, and if you could sign up today, I know sometimes we wait five weeks to sign up, but if you wait five weeks to sign up, it'll be gone. So I need you to sign up today, okay? All righty, well, let's, uh, let's get our Bibles out and get ready to take some notes this morning. I want to do a little bit of review for the lesson on uh, marriage that we covered last week. I know you've slept since then, but we got we to gotta catch up to where we are this morning, okay? So uh, we start off the lesson last week talking about what is the biggest issue in our marriage? The biggest cause of marriages breaking up, the biggest cause of marital issues. We used a particular word to describe what that biggest issue is. What would the answer to that be? What is the biggest issue in marriage? What? Selfishness. You're listening well, Faith, okay? So you're disqualified now. You can't answer the next question. This one's a little tougher, so I want you to engage your brain here. Christ died so that we could, instead of being focused on ourselves, be focused on the kingdom of the kingdom of God. Is that peace? All right. The non-married folks are whooping on the married folks. That's, uh, that's good and bad in some ways. To pursue the kingdom of God... True or false, this is a weekly effort. False. It is a daily effort, and pursuing the kingdom of God daily is our model for pursuing our spouse daily. In the same way that it takes a daily effort to grow closer to God, it takes a daily effort to grow closer to your You're not allowed to bless me unless I sneeze. So last week, we, we kind of set the stage, didn't we? That if we're going to grow closer to our spouses, it is simultaneous with growing closer to God. Last question. We used a certain geometric shape, Philip's kids cannot answer, to describe the dynamic of needing to grow closer to God so that we can grow closer to our spouse. What geometric shape did we use to help illustrate that. No, 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 Phillips kids. Triangle, triangle, and you were saying triangle. All right, now, 
my heart's been encouraged. We had some married people listening. That helps me. Okay, and then we ended the lesson talking about um, what we'll spend time on the next couple weeks. Six habits, six gospel principles that we must continue to dedicate ourselves to. No doubt if you have a healthy marriage in some way, you're probably already embodying these. But I wanna push you and push myself to grow in each of these areas. And the first habit that we listed on your handout at the end of last week's lesson was this habit. And you can write it at the top of your page because we're gonna take two weeks to expound this habit. It's this. We will give ourselves to a lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. We will give ourselves to a lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. If you wanna grow in your marriage and in your relationship with God, I'm gonna make that case, you must give yourself to a lifestyle of confession and forgiveness. But this morning, we're just gonna talk about the first part. We're gonna talk about confession. What's the difference between confession and forgiveness? If you can answer that question, what is the difference between confession and forgiveness? What's the difference between the two? Close, okay. So the, 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 the direction or the, the thing that we're dealing with in each of those is a little different. So confession, what am I doing? If I'm confessing, not quite. Um, I'm, I'm admitting to sin or wrongdoing. Forgiveness, on the other hand, is different. I'm not admitting to sin. What is forgiveness? I mean, there's a thousand ways you could define it, so don't be too scared. What is forgiveness? Great, great definition. Yeah, it's, it's so I'm not the wrongdoer in the forgiveness situation, right? I'm pardoning someone else for the wrongdoing. So what's the, def- what's the difference? Confession is me admitting to my sin, right? Faith, forgiveness is me pardoning their sin, okay? So today we're talking about confession, me admitting to my sin. And if you are a person in here, you are a sinner. And if you are a sinner, you're gonna bring that sin into a relationship, whether it's a church relationship, a friendship relationship, a marriage relationship, a dating relationship, a parenting relationship. You will have to confess wrongdoing. If you don't confess wrongdoing very often, you probably are either much more holy than me, which is possible, I'm not the most holy guy on planet earth, or you're not really recognizing your own indwelling sin. And here's what we have to recognize first of all, that, and I've told you all these principles are God-oriented first, and then we talk about the horizontal. But here's the truth, a, God, a healthy Godward relationship requires a determination to confess your sins against others. So confession isn't just good for your marriage. Confession is good for your relationship with God. If you don't confess, something's off in your relationship with God. And, and the scripture is pretty clear about that. Um, in fact, the first passage I'm gonna show you is in, was in my personal Bible reading a few days ago in the book of Numbers, chapter number five. Listen to these verses in Numbers chapter five. You might write these references down, verses five through nine. It says, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, speak unto the children of Israel 
when a man or woman shall commit any sin that men commit, to do a trespass against the Lord, and that person be guilty. Now stop. It seems like at first that God is talking about sins we commit against God, right? A trespass against the Lord. When you read the next verses, you find out pretty quickly that actually he's not talking about just Godward-oriented sins, because he says, and then they shall confess their sin which they've done, and he shall recompense his trespass with the principle thereof, adding unto it the fifth part thereof, and give it unto him against whom he had trespassed. So now we're reading, we recognize, no, 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 this is not a Godward sin. This is a horizontal sin, okay? And what's interesting about this is two things. I want you to note the word confess, this is interesting to me. In the, in the Hebrew language, the word confess has the same root word as praise. That's interesting, isn't it? Uh, in fact, you'll see that word translate differently depending on the context. Now, why would those two have the same root word? What is praise? Praise is ascribing to something what it is. You're, you're, you're basically saying how great something is. You are confessing the greatness. So when we praise God, we're just acknowledging who he is. He is great. He is holy. He is loving. He is kind, right? That's praise. Now, why would confession come from the same word? Here's the truth. I think because confession, to be truly confession, you have to recognize properly ascribing the greatness of what you've done. I'm going to say that again. True confession properly acknowledges the weight of what you've done. In the same way that true praise properly acknowledges the greatness of God, true confession properly acknowledges the weight of what you've done. Here's how I would say it. That true confession does not undervalue sin. It properly esteems it. True confession does not undervalue sin it properly esteems it, right? So if someone is saying they're sorry for something, but they're not recognizing the ramifications of what they did, it's not actually confession. Just the word sorry is not confession. And what we also notice in that, if you remember in Numbers 5, this is interesting. It seems that the immediate context is in terms of theft, Okay, the, the context doesn't say that, but if you read the corresponding passage in Leviticus, it seems to be an issue of theft, okay? So you've stolen something from somebody else, but the Bible says that you don't just return what you stole. What did it say? How much are you supposed to add to it? The fifth, 20%. That's a lot of interest, yo. That's a lot. Now, what's, what does that teach us about confession? What does that teach us about confession? It teaches us that real confession makes right what you've done wrong. Here's how I would say it. That true confession doesn't just admit our wrongs, it corrects the wrong. Corrects the wrong. So it's not just enough to acknowledge what you did, but in the passage... The law of God gives multiple ways for someone to make something right. In fact, the actual verses say that if the guy you stole from is dead, you still owe that money. You have to give it to a priest. 
and you still have to add 20%. So if I stole $100 from Judson, and God forbid, Amber, he dropped dead, I still have to give that money back. But since Judson's dead, and maybe you're out of the picture, I give it to God and add 20%. Now, the law is teaching us something there. That true reconciliation is you making right the things that you've done wrong. And and adding to it as best as you can. And there's obviously in monetary situations, it's easier to calculate that. But men and women recognize that if you're going to reconcile with your spouse against a wrongdoing, you don't just admit the wrong. You correct the wrong. You don't just admit you're lazy and self-absorbed instead of helping your spouse with with the kids. You correct it. You change your habits. You don't just admit that you um, dramatized or lied to the kids or made your husband look bad in front of the kids. No, women, you correct the wrong. You go to your kids and correct the wrong, right? That's That's what Numbers is teaching us. And what's interesting about this is in the context, in the broader context of Numbers 5, that if someone didn't offer this uh, reconciliation amount, this 120%, it would then affect their ability to enter into the tabernacle grounds. It would impede their relationship, their worship of God. Now, does that sound like something Jesus said? That if we don't make up our wrongs against our brothers and sisters, then it will impede our worship of God? Well, yeah, it's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. In the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus says. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave your gift at the altar, and go thy way, and first, it's an order of priority, be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that if you have an unconfessed sin against your brother or sister, whether you like it or not, it will hurt your relationship with God. That to not deal with the sins against other people properly, not just admitting they're wrong, but correcting the wrong, that impedes your vertical relationship with God. And and Jesus is really teaching this. Notice here that the brother who this person had wronged had not confronted him about his sin. There's no no acknowledgement that this brother had brought up what was done wrong to him. Now, I'm gonna make the case this week, next week, and last week, that if your spouse hurts you, it's your job primarily, first of all, to go to them. But I want you to think with me for a minute. How many times in marriage you've done wrong, I know I've done this, And I've waited to see if my spouse actually thought it was bad enough. And I'm laying in bed at night like, oh, I hope she doesn't bring it up. Maybe I'm evil and you're good, but I'm just saying that it happens in marriage that I know I've done something wrong and I'm ready to apologize if they bring it up because I feel sorry about it. I feel awful about it, but I'm just kind of waiting to see if they bring it up. Am I the only one? Maybe, I don't know. Y'all are looking at me like I'm terrible. Sorry. But you know what Jesus is teaching? He's teaching that you should go and confess your wrongdoing even if they don't bring it up. If you feel sorry about it, listen, that ain't the devil, y'all. That's the Holy Spirit saying, you messed up, fix it. So what Jesus is saying is if you know you've done wrong to your brother, 
your brother hasn't brought it up, go and fix it before you come and worship me because confession can and often should precede confrontation. Your confession often should happen before you're confronted about the wrongdoing. So if you messed up in a relationship and a friendship and and some other thing, you shouldn't wait till they bring it up. How many relationships are burdened under unconfessed sin because this person's trying to just carry that weight and the other person knows they did wrong, but they won't confess it. And so they just let them carry that. No, no, no. Confession should precede confrontation. But then the the New Testament takes it a step further, right? So here's what we're seeing. We're seeing that not properly dealing with offenses on this plane affects our worship with God in this direction. Are we seeing that? The New Testament takes it a step further with marriage. Listen to 1 Peter 3, 7. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, notice the last part, that your prayers be not hindered. Listen, I don't know about you, I don't want to lit on my prayers. What's, what is Peter addressing here? He's addressing offenses against her spouse. Particularly, he's speaking to husbands. Now, wives, you don't, you don't get a pass on this. It's not like your prayers are never hindered either if you're, not, if you're not doing wrong against your husband. But he's addressing husbands maybe because of the, predominantly the culture of, of the Roman Empire and things like that was that, and even some Middle Eastern context that the Jewish people are borrowing from, is that like the man runs the house and it doesn't really matter how the wife feels, she just needs to deal with it. And there's still American homes that kind of work that way. And what is Peter telling to his husband, to the husbands? He's saying that you should dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Now, when you read that phrase, class, what is that? How would you word that in your own language? Dwelling with your wife according to knowledge. What would you think that means? Okay, according to God's will. How else would we phrase that? Dwelling with your wife according to knowledge. What does that mean on a practical level? Take a stab at it. Come on. Guys, you're so stubborn. (laughs) Take a stab at it. No, Michael, not you. You've already taken a stab at it. I'm trying to involve the people who refuse to be involved. What is it? What do you think it means? Just and you don't have to be married to answer this. To dwell with your wife according to knowledge. Just take a stab at it. I want us to engage with this. I'll give you the answer. I want you to engage. What's that? Open communication. Yeah. Here, I love how one person translated this. This is maybe how we would say it in 2023. To live with your wife in an understanding way. Meaning you're supposed to be a, I'm supposed to be a Shelby expert. Judson is supposed to live with Amber as an Amber expert. Robert is supposed to be a joy expert. 
that, that our coexistence in the same house, that we should monitor our behavior in that relationship, understanding who our wife is. And in context, he's talking about being the weaker vessel. So we're supposed to understand her insecurities, her uh, emotional frailties or other things, right? The weaker vessel is not just talking about physical strength. I, I think it's talking about the particular differences emotionally between men and women. Men, you know what, what is often our excuse if our wife says, you hurt my feelings? We say something like this. I didn't know that would hurt your feelings. You know what Peter says? Not a good excuse. Not a good excuse. I, I, the way I would put it this way, men, is you're called to be a wifeologist. To dwell with your wife according to knowledge. To understand your Wife, to, and really what this is addressing is the sin of insensitivity, of insensitivity. Now, women, I'll say this to you. Listen closely, a few of you here who are uh, married, that your husband, to some way, grows in his ability to be a wifeologist if you are honest about your hurts, if you're honest about what your husband's doing. He can't grow in his knowledge of you unless you're honest about it. Instead of harumphing and pouting in the corner or just ignoring it or being even uber gracious, if something hurts you, you ought to help him see that in the kindest, most gracious way possible, right? A wife confronting her husband's insensitivity is the way he grows in that knowledge. But men, you are called to live in an understanding way with your wife. And, and what Peter's saying on a, on a sin that we would rank pretty low. Like, it's not a big deal. Being insensitive to your wife, I mean, I don't know if any of us are like, oh no, I'm really scared to stand before the Lord for that one. We should be, by the way. But you know what Peter's saying? If you're being chronically insensitive to your wife, I don't even listen to your prayers. That is a fearful thing. <laughs> that is a big deal. I love what Wayne Grudem says. He says, God is so concerned that Christian husbands should live in an understanding and loving way with their wives that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. First Peter 3, 7 is teaching this, that an offense against your spouse can even interrupt your prayer life. You might say, Pastor, teach us a series on prayer. Maybe for some of y'all, you need to fix this before we even get into a series on prayer because you can have 12 steps to have a healthy prayer life, but if you and your wife don't have a healthy relationship, don't even bother praying because you better fix that. You better fix that. It's serious, right? He says, no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with a, his wife in an understanding way and bestowing honor on her. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer and therefore an effective relationship with his wife. But here's the good news, that you may have a lot of issues you need to deal with with the habit of confession, but the grace of God is there to help you, men and women. We all have a lot of sin and a lot of things that we do to hurt others, but the grace of God equips you for this discipline of confession. How does the grace of God equip you? Number one, it equips you to help you see your indwelling sin. It's the grace of God that helps you see your indwelling sin. 
I think of the story of the prodigal son. You familiar with the prodigal son? And what does the prodigal son do? You know, he basically um, gives his dad the bird and he says, I'm leaving house. I want all my money. I want all my inheritance. And he goes and he parties it away. And what happens after he spends all of his substance, as our King James words, on riotous living? Where does he end up after that? Pig pen, that's right. Which is really uber bad because he's a Jew. So it also shows the fact that he doesn't care anything about the law. He's in the pig pen, right? I mean, even a respectful Jew would find a different thing. Uh, they, they would be hanging out with the sheep pen, at least, you know? But there's an interesting phrase in the prodigal son. He's, he's in the pig pen, and the, 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 the crux of the story is this little phrase that is worded in the King James that he came to himself. You remember that in the story? You know what's interesting about that? Is the story doesn't specify how long the guy was there. I don't presume that the, that the young man was in the pig pen for two hours. That's how I often picture it. What we understand is that this guy was living in a pig pen for days or weeks or months or years. We don't really know, but one day something just clicked. You know, that's how we would say it. Something clicked. The Mike Collins translation, that's maybe how it would read. You know, something clicked in his mind. And what did he say after he came to himself? Do you remember? You don't have to say the words exactly, but what was the internal realization that Jesus says he came to? That's right. Here's what he recognized. He recognized how bad his situation was and how good his situation could be. I could get a job in my father's household and be treated better than this. He recognized by the grace of God, there's no other explanation for it. Maybe the grace of God get piling those bad circumstances on him, but somehow in the middle of pig pen life, he woke up and saw how bad it was and how, could, how good it could be. Now listen, I think many marriages are traveling the one-way road of a hardened heart. They're settling into patterns and habits that should bother them like the pig pen, but they don't. You're just dwelling in your mess. You're like the homeless man living in the street who's moved beyond the smell of his own stench. It doesn't shock you anymore. It doesn't burden you anymore. It doesn't bother you anymore how you talk to your husband or rather how you talk about your husband. Men, it doesn't bother you the way you talk to your wife, even though someone else was staying in the room, it would shock them. It doesn't make you uncomfortable that you and your spouse don't talk anymore. Like you're just dealing with logistics. You don't have a relationship. You have a, a business partnership. It's a pig pen. It doesn't bother you anymore that you aren't physically intimate hardly ever. Pig pen. And I trust that if the grace of God is powerful enough for, the, for you to wake up in the stupor of your own sinfulness and call you to the grace of Jesus to be saved when you are spiritually blind and spiritually deaf, here's what I know. The grace of God is powerful enough for some of you to wake up and realize how bad it is and by the grace of God, how good it could 
B, God's grace has intervened in your spiritual blindness before. I trust he can do the same again. And it's only by the grace of God that we see our own sinfulness and how it's creating the mess that's in our own lives. Here's the second thought. The grace of God helps us to see our own self-righteousness. Because here's the thing in a lot of marriage is that a lot of people are like, you know, my marriage would be better if she would get her emotions under control. If she would stop this. If he would figure out that. Friend. It's not primarily when we see in scripture the grace of God that helps you see the faults of others. It's the grace of God that helps you see the faults when you look in the mirror. In fact, God is so serious about this. He says, if you can't look in the mirror and see what's wrong with you in your marriage, how you're a sinful person, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The positive way to word that is that the grace of God is so powerful, it forces you to see the sin you're contributing to your dysfunction. But if you can't see it, there's not a good evaluation of your standing with God and his truth. Now, I want to talk to you a little bit about habits of confession will be done. What are the the practical habits? And this this applies not just to your marriage. I, I really think it applies to everything in your life, your church friendships, your kids, your grandkids, whatever the case may be. There are certain things, certain habits you have to commit to as a husband, as a wife, as a person to really embody this principle of confession. And we've already diagnosed how serious this is. If we don't confess our sin, it interrupts our prayer life. It interrupts our worship of God. It could be so serious that if we don't see our sin at all, we aren't truly saved. We must deal with our sin. We must. But here's where it starts. And I think this is the biggest issue that you and your spouse need to have a commitment to be lovingly honest about your hurts. Lovingly honest about your hurts. I think this is where it goes wrong almost every time. Because it takes a really hard-hearted, arrogant person when confronted about a way that you've hurt them to just say, whatever. No. What most often happens is you just don't bring it up. Especially men, because you're so stinking proud and you think you could just shoulder everything, but you're mad about it for three weeks, which tells me you ain't as tough as you think you are. You've got a soft underbelly too, okay? You've got to be honest. And, And women hurt men at least as much as Um, men hurt women. This happens both ways. I I heard a story this week about uh, marriage. Um, I'll share a little bit more in the service, but God tremendously uh, gave us a wonderful opportunity. My wife and I have been praying for a truck for a year and a half for me to get a truck, and I got a truck this week, which I'm super happy about. And I remember someone was telling my wife that her husband came home with uh, his first truck. It wasn't a nice truck. They had had a discussion that this truck needed to have four doors. And do you, any of you remember them trucks that had three doors? 
know what I'm talking about? On the one side, I had the like bigger door for the driver's side, but on the other side, I had like that mini tiny door so you could get in the back seat if you pull the seat forward. So the guy shows up at the house with a three-door truck, like kind of a compromise, probably because he found a better deal on the thing, right? Crew cabs, they, they, they cost more often. And his, his wife responded by not speaking to him for several days. What, what actually is the saddest part about that story is not how you have a, a guy who's really excited about his first truck and his wife is not. It's that you have a husband whose feelings were really hurt and he didn't bring up to his wife for several years. You know, when you respond that way, it hurt. It really hurt. And I bet, men, that's true of you more often than you'd be willing to admit. Ladies, I would imagine it's true of you also. More often, because maybe you feel like if I brought up every hurt, we would be having a talk every three hours, right? But how else does your husband grow according to knowledge? How else does your wife grow and dwell with you according to knowledge than you giving them knowledge about maybe you are like Peter and you don't see that you are acting in a sinful and selfish way? Did Peter know that he was being used as a tool of Satan? When he said to Christ, no, Lord, you can't go to the cross. I trust if the rock upon which the church was initially built has that issue, I think I might have the same spiritual blindness. Men and women, we have to be committed to being honest with each other. See, that the real crux of confession often is not that it's hard for us to confess our sins when we're confronted with them. That's hard. The real hard part is we're not willing to bring them up when they happen to us. And I, I can't tell you, and not just in marriages, but in other relationship issues even I've worked with, with friends and church people and all this, how often people come in with problems that are not the immediate offense that they happened two weeks ago. No, when they start talking, it's this thing and this thing and this thing and this thing, and it goes back to when they first got married, sometimes to when they were dating. Holy cow, that's a lot of junk that should have been offloaded by now. If you want to have one habit that could really help your marriage, be honest. Women, be honest with your husband when he puts you second instead of first. Men, be honest when your wife makes you feel disrespected. I don't know, it makes you feel like, you know, maybe you're not tough like you thought you were. But I'm just saying, you probably bear that internally more than you might think. What happens when the sin's actually brought up, though? Here's the commitment we have to make. We will not excuse our wrongs. We will admit them. Oh, this is good advice. And probably the one I struggle with the most on this list, just being honest. Humility is really hard when your sin is exposed because we all view ourselves in a more positive light. Somebody shake their head or say amen to that. We all think we're better than we actually are. Yes, Pastor Mike, <laughs> we all do. And we all have this inner defense system, right? When someone brings something up and we have every reason why they're wrong. 
uh, myself included. And what we have to recognize is when you understand the gospel, listen, listen, when you understand the gospel, you can't be saved unless you understand what we would label the doctrine of indwelling sin. What is the doctrine of indwelling sin? Is that you are a sinner by nature. So listen, man, how does the gospel help inform you when you're confronted with your sin? It helps you be less surprised. Oh no, I hurt somebody. I sinned against them. No way. That's how we all respond. Instead, it should be, again, I'm not surprised at all. What did I do now? Help me see it. Because by the power of Christ, I can fix it. We want to cast our wrongs in the best possible light. We want to explain our motives and all of that. And here's again what I'd help you men see, particularly because you might be the one who struggles with this. Maybe some of you ladies, you want to turn the tables on your spouse. But your actions matter as much as your intentions. You may not have a wrong intention. I said one of the very first things in the series, very few spouses go out and say, let me make my wife or my husband's day more miserable. That's my mission today. No, no one does that. But that doesn't excuse when you don't dwell with your wife or your husband according to knowledge. It doesn't excuse it. So instead of excusing by a sort of self-centered pride, you must admit it. You must admit it. And I will say this. There, there are certain types of people that the way that they show their selfishness and their pride is not by refusing to admit they're wrong. Listen very carefully. It's by pouting and being dramatic and making it about them when they're confronted. Making it about them. No. This confrontation, even if you did wrong and you feel really bad about it, it's not about you. Stop making it about you. It's about them. It's about how you hurt them. I love what Paul David Tripp says. He says that when you commit to confession, you experience the beauty of a relationship that has no reason to keep a record of wrongs and has no closets filled with the emotional baggage of yesteryear. Whereas you used to wait days to talk about wrongs in your marriage, you now move quickly to resolve issues because you have experienced the beauty of forgiveness, reconciliation, and tender love that a confession lifestyle produces. Here's the, here's the commitment we all need to make. We will keep short accounts with each other. Some of us think it's harder to have multiple, I gotta bring up this wrongdoing. You know what's way worse than that? Having to come and talk to somebody who you have a list 13 items long about. That's really hard. Here's the next one. We will show the grace of Christ toward the confessor. Men, women, let me help you. No one, no one gets mad when someone confesses their sin. We're all grateful for it. You want to really stifle this habit of confession, women and men? Be a jerk when the person admits they're a sinner. Pray tell, I wonder what it'd be like if you kneeled on your knees before God tomorrow and confessed your sins and he acted like you did when your spouse confessed their sins. For some of us, you know, a voice out of heaven would be like, well, let me tell you for 10 minutes how bad of a person you are. And then let me go bring up how bad you are to all my friends at the party. No, 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 we show the grace of Christ. 
What does Christ do? He receives our confession. He forgives. And we'll talk about that next week. He forgives willingly. I would encourage you, men, you might need to write this down because you, you probably need a piece of paper that tells you what to do in this scenario. Here's what you need to do. Thank them for confessing their sin and assure them of your forgiveness. Thank them, assure them of your forgiveness. Women, thank your husband for acknowledging his wrongdoing. Assure him of your forgiveness. If you're struggling with that, come next week. Maybe we'll have some help there. And for goodness sake, give the person a hug. My soul. You know, don't make it awkward. Like, when should we hug? Should I kiss him? Yeah, you should. Don't make him feel awkward. That's how Jesus would do it. Not that he, you know, I'm not talking about the physical part. I'm just saying Jesus wouldn't be like, well, now let me make you feel awkward and make you feel like we're not close for three hours. Don't, don't try and give me a hug. I'm still mad. Yeah, Jesus wouldn't do that. Come on. Show the grace of Christ. By the way, Christ doesn't ignore sin. That's not the grace of Christ, right? But on the other hand, Christ doesn't hold a record of wrongs, right? He casts them as far as the east is from the west. And 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that true love doesn't keep a record of wrongs either, right? And yet so many marriages are held hostage by the past. Here's the last one. How do we confess? We trust that our sins are covered by the blood of Christ, why can you confess your sin to your spouse, even if they don't always show the grace of Christ? Because when you do your part to sweep your side of the street, your sins are covered by the blood of Christ. I think on your handout, I gave you two discussion questions. Man, you ought to consider doing these. You ought to consider doing these, or three of them. Consider where you've wronged your spouse, ask your spouse for forgiveness, and pray together and submit your hurts to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we come to you, God, and you are always gracious to our sin. We pray you'd help us to confess our wrongs, to accept your grace that helps us see our wrongs. And then God, empower us next week as we talk about proper forgiveness. In Jesus' name, amen.